<laughs> there be wicked witchcraft afoot. Welcome, my Memortalites, to another round of the book reviews. My name is Kyron, host of the Memortals podcast, but also this one where I dive deeper into the books that I'm reading to give you the juicy information within to extract some themes you might not have thought about and to also learn about witchcraft. Indeed, we do have Arthur Miller's The Crucible. So this book, or should I say play, was published in 1953, and it's about 126 pages long. You'll get through it pretty quickly because a lot of it is dialogue. It's not a super, super dense thinking type book. It's a fictionalized play depicting the 1692-1693 Salem Witch Trials. So these are the infamous trials that occurred in Massachusetts in the United States of America during a period of great uproar of mass hysteria or fervor or religious, um, you know, the Puritans think of that type of era. It centers around John Proctor, who is a, a farmer, a businessman, and his wife, Elizabeth Proctor. And what we see is she basically gets denounced as a witch, he tries to defend her. He is denounced afterwards as well. And then there's these kind of subsequent sequences of what is going on in the trials and then the uh, eventual hangings and executions that occurred. So there are four acts in total, and each of these is roughly 20 to 30 pages long, apart from act number one, which gives uh, a bit more narration as well. It gives some details behind who these characters are and, and what um, their significance is in the town of Salem and some of the, I guess, fleshing out of the character, which you won't see in the actual dialogue. Now, the four acts, they take place uh, first in the bedroom of one of the girls who is uh, uh, stricken with this fever and uh, we see how, okay, there's going to be some accusations of witchcraft afoot. The second is in the house of John Proctor as the marshals come to uh, collect his wife because she has been denounced. The third is in the courtroom where he tries to prove her innocence and only ends up uh, proving his own uh, guilt, you, I guess you could say. And then fourthly in the jail where they all need to make some decisions as to are they going to confess, are they going to stay true and to their beliefs and to uh, not confessing to consorting with the devils and witchcraft and, and things like this. So there are a lot of extra characters. I mentioned some of them there. Some of the kids like Abigail and Betty who are you know the ones who are doing the accusations. There is the priests or the, um, I, I guess, like people, the, the parishes, the, the churchmen. So this would be Reverend Paris and Reverend Hale. There's some of the other farmers and other related uh, people who are in the town of Salem, just normal townsfolk. And then there is uh, the prosecutors of the, the law who come in and who are the, the judges. And they're actually the ones, you know, condemning people and whatnot. So... This, uh, onto the author himself, Arthur Miller, was born in 1915 and died in 2005. And he's also very well known for another play of his uh, called Death of a Salesman. And this was written as an allegory for the McCarthy era uh, of the kind of communist crackdowns that were occurring in the United States, which was, you know, this kind of denouncing of people of this mass hysteria of, you know, this person's a bad person, even though there's no real particular evidence for it. What you'll find in this is that it is uh, occurring of there, there were actual people modeled on some of these uh, yeah, people in the play. So you will see there is tombstones for Sarah Good, for John Proctor, and that, you know, Abigail and whatnot. They, these were real people who existed, but, you know, he did play with 
some of the ages of the characters. He did play with some of the settings behind their interactions with one another to kind of flesh out the story or to add in extra motives and whatnot. So it's not purely, purely, you know, strictly to the the letter of what actually happened there, but it's an okay representation of perhaps what could have occurred during those times. So let's jump on to the first theme and it is mass hysteria, illness without cause. And so the, I suppose, technical definition of mass hysteria is an illness or something which is contagious without there being an actual agent. And it does have an actual sickness, a physical sickness to it. And you can kind of see that there's there's two types of this where it gets separated into children and they have this kind of anxiety type one and then a, a general one from the more general public. What we see in this play is that there is actually a kind of initial cause. Betty Paris, the very first opening scene, is of her sick in a bed and there is actually something wrong with her. She has a fever. She has some spots on her. She is uh, behaving strangely and, you know, for all intents and purposes, unconscious for large periods until she then tries to jump out of a window. Uh, so, so we can see, okay, there's an actual sick girl here. But as the play progresses on, we start to see, okay, you know, these children, they're all, they're kind of acting, you know, they're, they're kind of seeing that she's acting weird. And so then they start acting weird. And by act three, the children are, are really genuine in their fainting fits in their, you know, blood running cold in the symptoms that they're actually having, there are physical things going on with these children. And so we can see, okay, there is this mass hysteria and it is without a cause. There is no actual illness uh, traveling around at the time. So what's the only explanation? Of course, it's witchcraft. It's got to be witchcraft. (laughs) So we see this buildup that happens from act one to four where kind of goes from this slow start to this fever pitch expectation. So at the start, it kind of is fun and games. You know, they get to, uh, the children this is, get to kind of play around and they they get to absolve themselves of some of the naughty things that they were doing in the forest and, and whatnot. They were just playing fun and games. And then, you know, they kind of get a taste of power and so they, they start to use it, start to settle some old grudges. This is the main storyline behind why Abby is, uh, Abigail, one of the elder children is, denouncing Elizabeth Proctor, it is because she once slept with uh, John Proctor and so she kind of wants the wife out of the picture so that she can have him for herself. This gives into kind of misgivings where some of the other children are now starting to see like, oh, this is kind of serious. The adults are taking this seriously. They're, They're starting to put people in jail. They're starting to hang people. And it's because I said that she was a witch. And this is where, you know, the guilt is starting to play in and this cycle of, well, I can't confess now because I, I kind of denounce someone and they got killed. Uh, if I say that I was just joking around, you know, I, the adults are going to blame me for killing someone, that, that sort of deal. And this then transitions into actual belief. They actually believe that there are witches. They, when they're in this mass hysteria phase, they do go crazy and, and whatnot. So we kind of see how this mass hysteria can can build up and whatnot. Now, uh, this is mostly the, I suppose, the physical side of things, but going on to the mass hysteria, as, as we'd probably call it nowadays, is of people believing things. So, you know, the children acting weird and silly, that's fine. Children do that all the time. But the adults believe this. And this is kind of the real problem that that occurs, this mass hysteria of 
well, what are the real causes? What are, what is actually going on? Why are people actually dying and getting hanged for for being witches without any real evidence? They were using this kind of spectral evidence as uh, as something that could be could be used. And funnily enough, it's kind of mundane and it's misdirected. So I'm going to go onto page seventy two here, and this is where. The they've they've come to collect is Elizabeth and um, John Proctor is is kind of um, giving a, a, an impassioned speech as to to kind of protect her and whatnot and so it goes like this Proctor if she is innocent why do you never wonder if Paris be innocent or Abigail is the accuser always holy now were they born this morning as clean as God's fingers I'll tell you what's walking Salem vengeance is walking Salem. We are what we always were in Salem, but now the little crazy children are jangling the keys of the kingdom and common vengeance writes the law. This warrants vengeance. I'll not give my wife to vengeance. And so that is one of the reasons we see that one of the other characters, uh, her, the father of one of the children who's doing the denouncings, he wants John's land. He, you know, it's pure and simple economics done and dusted. Uh, there's grudges also that are being sorted out between people getting accused and and not accused. There is fear. There's obviously the fun with the children. There's the kind of Puritan values which are used for justification for all of this. So a lot of the real causes behind the the Salem witch trials and whatnot, are, you know, they're just plain old simple humans being humans and it's uh, kind of really disgusting <laughs> to be honest and and terrifying as well because you, when you're reading you can really picture yourself in in the shoes of john proctor and his wife elizabeth or at least i felt that way and what is really scary of all of this mass hysteria is it's alive and well today this is not a, a thing from 300 years ago which was just a one and done no 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 no, no. this is a modern thing and you can see it with the toilet paper fights that were going on during the uh, initial stages of the COVID pandemic. You can see this with the 1980 uh, satanic panic, which happened in America and then spread to other parts of the world where these kindergartens were being accused of being satanic ritual centers for murder, for, you know, abducting children, for blood rights, for all of this crazy crap. Not a shred of evidence for any of it other than um, people recalling stuff from memory in the kind of therapeutic chair of, of therapy or something like this. So, yeah, very, very dodgy. Uh, this, there's lots of schools. You can go onto Wikipedia and find out all of these schools which have children uh, kind of creating symptoms and one child is acting this way, another star, child starts acting like it, and then suddenly all of them are acting like this. And there's even a YouTube parallel for this, funnily enough, where a German uh, YouTuber who had something called, um, uh, it was like Gewitter in the Sturm or something like that. It was basically like a th- thunderstorm in the mind. And he he had Tourette's, but he was kind of acting it up as well. And then a lot of children were seeing doctors with Tourette-like syndromes. And this was occurred in the period after that he he kind of became famous. And it's kind of, you know, a lot of this is, uh kind of it's hard to prove as well it's kind of the the sorrows of young werther effect where the copycat suicides that occur after a suicide or or mass murders after a mass murdering and things like that you know some of it is kind of a little bit shaky on evidence as to whether it is actually a thing 
But I, I, I think there can be no doubt that mass hysteria of humans overreacting to stimulus and fearing things that should not be feared or the risk factor should not dictate a level of action such as fighting people in the supermarkets for toilet paper, <laughs> you know, there is, there is still well and alive today. So definitely mass hysteria is, is one of the, the themes that you will find in this book. The next one is martyrs, and I've written down death for refusing to comply. And what we see in this is there's definitely a decision that needs to be made. And this is because trials somewhat require a yes or no. They're innocent or they're guilty. You can't be kind of 30% guilty or 50% innocent or a mix of the two. There's no gray areas allowed. It either needs to be a yes or no. And so we kind of see this with many of the characters, such as uh, Rebecca Nurse, who is this upstanding moral citizen. She gets accused. And from the very get-go, she's like, "Um, no, I'm innocent. I'm not going to tolerate being accused of witchcraft. I I refuse it. I'm not going to denounce anyone. I'm not going to say an untruth to protect my own life. I'm I'm innocent, and I, I uphold this to the very end. You kind of compare that with someone like John, who's kind of wavering a bit. He and and this is kind of a reflection of his own internal state because he feels guilty about sleeping with the Abigail. He feels uh, uh, kind of like he is a bad man, and and in some ways he is obviously not morally perfect. And so, jumping onto page one hundred and twenty-four here, we're in the the jail scene, and basically this is right towards the end of the book. You know, second or third last page. And he's just signed his name. Yeah, he's verbally confessed. He's just not signed his name to a piece of paper saying that he confesses to witchcraft. And now the kind of officials want his piece of paper. And so he goes, uh, Proctor, with a cry of his soul, because it is my name, because I cannot have another in my life, because I lie and sign myself to lies, because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang. How may I live without my name? I've given you my soul. Leave me my name. And then Danforth, who is the uh, judge, pointing at the confession in Proctor's hand. Is that document a lie? If it is a lie, I will not accept it. What say you? I will not deal in lies, Mr. Proctor is motionless. You will give me your honest confession in my hand or I cannot keep you from the rope. Proctor does not reply. Which way do you go, Mr.? His, best, his breast heaving, his eyes staring, Proctor tears the paper and crumples it, and he is weeping in fury, but erect. So we see right towards the end, he, he's wavering, he's unsure of if he's going to confess or not. He wants to protect his life. His wife's life is, is somewhat saved because she is pregnant, so they're not going to hang a pregnant lady. And at, he just can't do it. He can't confess and knowingly confess to a lie is basically to save his life. And he says it. He says, you know, I've I'm, I've given away my soul. Just at least give me something. Let me keep my name at least. And we'll get onto a little bit this uh, of more of this soon, uh, later. But it's it's kind of funny because the, this martyrdom, only some get the opportunity. And so in this book, he is he's perceived as a martyr. At the end, you know, he gets executed and uh, he, he is kind of, uh, looked back upon at least at the end of this book as you know well there's a there's a guy who stood for his morals he's a martyr he was a maybe an imperfect man but he was a, a pure man at heart at the end but only some get this opportunity right towards the start of the book a lady called Sarah Good is denounced 
And she's basically this this girl, who's, I guess you'd call her like a homeless lady. She's basically down on her luck. She's had, you know, perhaps has some mental issues, uh, is kind of mean-spirited, mutters to herself. Uh, when she's get given charity, she, she doesn't behave in a in a gracious or a grateful way. And kind of a lot of people don't like her. And she gets absolutely railroaded. She gets denounced. No one's in her corner. No one's backing her up. She she refuses. She says, "No, I'm innocent. I'm not going to uh, tell a tell an unlie or uh, tell a lie or an untruth." And she just gets hanged, and that's kind of done and dusted. That is her. There's there's no martyrdom for her. She doesn't get any of the praise or the glory or anything like this. And so we really see it's kind of chance mixed with your prior standing in the community. If you're one of the first ones to get denounced, one of the first ones to get hanged you know, good luck. You're you're now just a number. And it's just, it's so funny to see how some people kind of can get this martyrdom. Uh, and, you know, for some people, they might even chase it themselves. There are people who have this martyr complex where they act like the victim because they can kind of get the praise for being the victim. And I guess the, the outcome of all of this is rather uncertain. It's not guaranteed that you're going to be viewed upon in history as a great person or that if your your kind of martyrdom will will even work if you will be saved. A black mark remained on Elizabeth Proctor uh, for the rest of her life, even though she was spared and because of she was giving a child and so she didn't get hanged and people came to their senses and they realized, oh, we're just straight up murdering people here for no reason. She continually had this black mark on her name for the rest of her life. And it wasn't until, uh, and this is an actual, the real, real, uh, life stuff. Now, uh, she marries, I believe like seven years after the trials. And it's only then that she's kind of absolved legally of her, of her sins of, of being a witch. I believe there was only an exoneration of all the people who got hanged 300 years later. So this was 20 or 30 years ago where the governor or the mayor or whatnot of um, Massachusetts or Salem kind of officially <laughs> resolved every one of their wrongdoings for witchcraft and whatnot. It's just like, Jesus, what the fuck? You know, how, how is it that the, this martyrdom can happen and yet, you know, people don't really, it's, it's not a guarantee. If, you, if you're looking for martyrdom as a, as a way to save yourself and uh, for, for perhaps glory or a legacy or something like that uh, it's a risky play because a lot of people in here they just they don't get it even though they were perhaps more morally um, upright or just than some of the other characters you know it's the john proctor who gets the the lion's share of the book of the praise and whatnot even though uh, other characters are perhaps more worthy than him of that you know it's a it's a it's a funny thing funny thing life Onto my observations and takeaways. What will happen in this book is you're just going to feel a mounting horror at the true situation. And the true situation is is truly, it really is horrifying. And John Proctor comes to this realization when he's trying to absolve his wife of her guilt. He's gotten one of the girls, his kind of housemaid, to come to her senses. And she's like, I'm going to con- confess that it was all made up in games. And she's going to you know, accuse the other children of just false accusations. And then this ridiculous scene goes on. Uh, The other children start acting crazy. She starts acting crazy. She denounces him. And the whole thing is a farce. Everyone can kind of see it's a farce, but they're playing along. 
And so uh, we have here Proctor laughs insanely then. A fire, a fire is burning. I hear the boot of Lucifer. I see his filthy face and it is my face and yours, Danforth. For them that quail to bring men out of ignorance as I have quailed and as you quail now when you know in all your black hearts that this be fraud. God damns our kind especially and we will burn. We will burn together. And so this is this, this laughs insanely, I think is a great way of putting this because what else can you do? It's kind of sickly. There's nothing to the only way you can absolve yourself is to actually do evil deeds. It is to, you know, to kind of prove you're a good person. You have to denounce other people. You have to tell lies. You have to just behave in morally corrupt ways. And that is the only way to prove that you're morally uncorrupt. <laughs> you know, it's it's this kind of, I, it's this situation I, I that I think is a depiction of life, which is this paradox of this, and in this case, it's not a, a kind of fun paradox or a just, you know, laughing at the stupidity of humans or how we think we can control things or things like this. No, it's it's the paradox of getting into such a bad situation that no matter what you do, you're screwed. And it's kind of the way that this play presents it, this mounting horror as you see step after step is falling into place where you go on like, Oh no, like, oh no, this isn't going to end up well. Like, oh no, they're starting to take the children seriously. Oh no, they're starting to actually, you know, put some of this into practice and go to people's houses and, uh, you know, the there's more government officials coming in and whatnot. Oh no, oh no. It just it continues on, continues on. Another one was I never really understood martyrdom when I was younger. I remember kind of from the ages of probably 10 to 25, I always thought, why wouldn't you just confess? Why wouldn't you just confess to it? You know it's bullshit. They know it's probably bullshit. You don't have to mean it. They just want the the tick, the piece of paper, the signing off or whatnot. And I think one of the things is that as you get older, life somewhat teaches you suffering. <laughs> it teaches you that, okay, no matter how good you think life could get in the future, or if you just had more money, or if you just had this you know, perfect partner, if you just had the kids that you always wanted, if this just one illness or ailment that you had went away, everything would be great. And what life teaches you is no, no, there's, there's going to be suffering kind of no matter what. And so if you know you're doing something so morally corrupt that such as denouncing other people, denouncing other people is the only way that for you to save your life, I can, I can somewhat understand the martyr principle it is still a ridiculous thing to do and uh it but but i kind of i'm i'm a more appreciative i don't think martyrs are, are idiots anymore i think that people have pretty high conviction with maybe a little bit of idiocy <laughs> thrown in as well it's it's a very it's a messed up situation and um when people are kind of driven to the wall and you can kind of see who they are truly deep down inside, what their priorities are, what they care about most of all. Um, I, th I think it can expose a side of humanity which might not be the most pleasant of ones um, but can show some really admirable qualities as well. So, yeah, just uh, something on, on martyrs there. In summary, it conveys a sinking hopelessness, a black mart on humanity and not on the devil. This book really, really shows that. Uh, it actually kind of scares me because this is a modern story of vengeance, of fear, of accidents, of kids, of people behaving in ways where 
they could just get caught up in the mass hysteria of something and it can all still happen and it can happen to you that is that is kind of what i took away from this it works well even though it's in a book form this was written as a play to be done on a stage and whatnot and to be honest is almost a bit too chilling because it evokes such negative feelings in me I, I was not happy after reading this book. I was going, God damn, just humanity. Fuck, we keep we keep doing this shit. Why? And and you know, and it's modern. It's it could happen to me. And I could be on either side of this as well. I could be the the one getting persecuted or I could be the persecutor. And in either case, it's equally as horrible. So for me, um, I'm gonna have to give the book uh, it's really mixed ratings. Uh, I'm going to have to give it kind of like a 10 out of 10 for the writing, but a 1 out of 10 for the way that I felt afterwards. So uh, I, I'm going to overall, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. I'm going to give it a completely unjustified 5.5 out of 10. Uh, hell, it's about unjustified uh, killings and unjustified unjust, justice. So um, yeah, yeah, Arthur Miller will, will forgive me for my uh, my rating there. <laughs> and that is it for today, my mere mortalites. Thank you for joining me to the end of this audio. What are your thoughts on The Crucible, on Arthur Miller, on witches? I would love to know all of these things. The best way to do that is by leaving a comment. So you can go to any of our social media profiles that you find down in the links below. Or you could send in a boostergram, which is a message attached to a pavement of Satoshi's. If you go on to newpodcastapps.com, have a check out of some of them. Fountain is a pretty good one. And also going on to meermortalspodcast.com slash support. And that'll give you some options as to how you can support this show and uh, help keep the running costs of this. Uh, You know, I do have to pay for the video camera, for the editing software, for the uh, hosting of the files and all this sort of stuff. So I would just uh, appreciate any support that you send back to the show. So with all of that being said, I do hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world. If you're a witch, I hope you're living your best witch life. Ciao for now. Kyron out.